Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a therapist and improviser from Naples, Florida. And on Improv Interviews, we have interesting folks who are using improvisation in all kinds of wonderful and therapeutic ways. Today, we have two very special guests. Nino Angela is a trained certified forensic interview, a Chicago-based improv comedian and founder and CEO of Empathic Workplace and Improv Therapy Group. She's been very open about her recovery from eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and how improvisation helped her with that. And the spectacular Lisa Bainey. She's the author of four books, and one of her books on stage has been translated into German and Korean and sold many copies around the world. She started teaching at Second City in 1992 and is directed and taught throughout the Chicagoland area. A graduate of Columbia College, Lisa has taught some of the courses I've been so interested in in Second City, like Improv for Parkinson's. So I'm so excited to have you both on the show today. Welcome. Hello. We are very excited to be here. Hello. 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 All right. Yeah, we are. We, we are very, very excited. Yes. Great. Well, I'm excited too because she, I started improv interviews really to find ways of therapeutic improv and people that were doing it. And you two are the queens of it right now. I'm so excited <laughs> about what you're doing. Your websites are fantastic. They'll be posted with the podcast. So, uh, Lisa, let's start off with you. Let me hear a little bit about how you got involved in improv. Wow. Uh, so, I guess my dad's a jazz musician. So that's my first link to improv. Uh, I believe that he meant for me to be a piano player, but I was very rebellious in my youth. I didn't want to be the piano player of the family. Um, and I rebelled all the way to theater from music. And then as I was doing theater, realizing that what I really loved about theater was all the improvisation, the warm-ups, the connections I was making that way. And uh, so I ended up not rebelling very well from improvisational music to improvisational theater at a pretty young age. Great. And so you were hooked right away, I bet. I was so hooked right away. You fall in love with improv, as you know, just the feeling you get from doing it. Mm -hmm. So true. So addicted. I mean, yeah. taking class after class after class and being in Chicagoland area to so many opportunities to study at various places like Second City and I.O. and Annoyance and yes. great places. So, Angela. Yes. I read some lovely quotes from you and I was watching a few days ago a video of you talking about uh, what happens in our brains when we're empathic and we're going to talk more about empathy and empathy in the workplace, but yes. how did you go from a certified forensic interviewer to improv? Yes, that is uh, I get that question a lot because they don't really seem like they're linked at all. Uh, so I was, I was teaching interview and uh, don't freak out interrogation techniques for about five years and it was like I had my own show for like two days and it was wonderful. And people would tell me things like, you should do stand-up comedy. And I was like, okay, I will. And so I met Deanna Martinez, the former CEO of Second City during a training class. And I asked her about stand-up comedy and she said, you're in Chicago, you go to Second City. So I said, okay. 
And when I went on the website, they said that in order to take the stand-up comedy class, the prerequisite was improv. And I still haven't taken the stand-up comedy class. <laughs> I went, oh, I never got there. Still haven't gotten there. And I wanted to go just because people told me I should be a stand-up comic. And I fell in love with improv. I, I just absolutely, like, it's, it's my drug of choice now. I love it. <laughs> It's fantastic. So I have to tell our listeners, because this is a podcast, that you two are in a car right now, hiding from the rain. And yeah. uh, this is like, I think I feel kind of like carpool podcast now. I think yeah. should be a, that should be my theme, carpool <laughs> we, we can do that. We, we, okay. can be, we can be the first ones. We're very happy. Okay. Um, so how did you two meet? I was her teacher. Uh, a second city. Yes, yes, a second city. Yeah, Lisa was my level B teacher. So she got me, uh, you know, right away. And, you know, I tell the story of, you know, I often tell this story that, you know, level B, you know, level A is, you know, everyone does a good job and yay. And, you know, there's really no feedback. It's just all about, all about the basics of improv. And in level B, you know, you take it to the next level. And it was the very last class where we got, feedback and everyone we sat in a circle and everyone went around the circle and said one thing that they liked about each person in the room and the only person who was allowed to give critical feedback was Lisa thank goodness <laughs> and she said to me uh stop trying to be so perfect and it was one of those moments i may have even said it if not i definitely said it in my head i feel like this is really timely life feedback for me I, I struggle with perfectionism and, you know, that's one day at a time. Talk about recovery. And I, I just felt an instant, it, we were very connected the entire class. I was interested in what she was doing. She was interested in what I was doing. We we're kind of like fangirling each other back <laughs> and forth. Um, but that's my, that's my strongest memory of level B was stop trying to be so perfect. That's great feedback. And most of us, especially people who've had different issues like anxiety in our lives, anxiety is kind of based in wanting to be perfect, I think, sometimes. And yeah. um, so there was a show that Lisa directed called uh, Therapist Me Off. Yes. yes. I want to hear from both of you about that show. Did you write it too, Lisa? So we wrote it together. Um it's a sketch. It's a combination of sketch comedy, uh, a few songs, and uh, some improv. So we put together, uh, we had a lot of writing meetings coming up with, you know, what are some of the funny things that happen in therapy, um, and put together uh, about uh, 40 minutes of sketch and then another 20 minutes of improv for the show. And Lisa, what was your, did you have several characters, I'm sorry, Angela, did you have several characters during the show? I did. I, I had a really fun character. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was typecast for this, but it was the disgruntled person in group therapy, <laughs> which is funny because I'm a very cooperative member of the therapeutic process, very willing participant. <laughs> so I had a really good time playing the disgruntled person. That was definitely my favorite character to play. That's great. And yeah. were there videos of it? Is there any way to see it at all? There's a few links to clips of it on YouTube. 
on the Improv Therapy Group channel. I know that there's, I think we did a family dinner is on there. That was, that was a lot of fun. Family dinner always, always, always nails it. Yeah. And we do plan on continuing doing more shows of Therapist Me Off. Could you repeat that? Yeah, we're going to continue and do more shows, more performances of oh, that show. I want to come out and play with you. Yes. Yes. We would Please love to come have to Chicago you. and play. You know, I love it when we're doing the scene and, and I somebody assigns me as the therapist, you know, a little typecasting. <laughs> yes. But it's such a creative, wonderful idea. So, and you wrote music. And we wrote, yeah, we wrote uh, like a few song parodies to go along with it. We wrote, there's a, are you familiar with I'm Just a Bill, the schoolhouse rock song? We rewrote it to be I'm Just a Pill. And so you can imagine what that's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also really like the uh, three little, the big bad wolf. Oh, yes. The poor bad wolf. Uh, you know, his, his nemesis, of course, is the brick house. That he could never blow to his therapist while singing the the song "Brick House." I got to be a therapist in that scene, so <laughs> I I often tell people, "No, I'm not a therapist, but I do get to play one on stage." Fantastic. Okay, so one of my favorites favorite song parodies that we did was about the Big Bad Wolf. And he was in therapy and he was very frustrated about not being able to blow down the brick house. So I watched Lisa write this song, by the way, in the car in like 10 minutes. She's, <laughs> it's amazing to watch her creative process. It, it's like a little miracle. And so you sang it as well, right? So yeah, somebody in the show was the wolf and sang most of it. And then we had the pigs being little backup singers. And then Angela <laughs> was the therapist. She got the big punchline at the end. Yes. I, so I, I tell people I'm not a therapist because I'm not. And I like to add that I do get to play one on stage. And that was one of the scenes that I got to play a therapist. Oh, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. But I didn't know you could write music and, and perform it as well. So you, you may be hired for my jingle. I'm looking for a jingle. <laughs> so good. So good. I've watched her do this multiple times. It's, it's amazing. Oh, that's so much fun. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, um, you know, Story Theater, Paul Sills. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I love doing work with fairy tales. And uh, yes. I have a, had a group for anxiety. And they just, everybody got into it and they quickly got into changing roles and pieces of furniture. I mean, it was just so much fun to watch. And Three Little Pigs is one of my favorites, actually. So that is cool. That is really cool. So um, now which came first, Uh, the therapy group improv or the empathy? So I... Lisa and I had been talking for a long time about wanting to combine our superpowers, the superpowers of improv and the superpowers of empathy. So I think that she and I have been talking about that since I want to say almost like, you know, 2016, maybe even earlier, maybe like 2015. The improv therapy group was really birthed very organically. So I'm in recovery from an eating disorder And I started that journey in May of 2017. And I remember I would 
say so many times to therapists, they would say things to me like, uh, stop trying to be so perfect. And I was like, what are you, do you know, Lisa? And then they would say <laughs> things like, let, they would say things like, let go of control. And I was like, are you guys like texting? Are you friends? Like, how, <laughs> how is it that my theater teacher, my improv teacher and my therapist are saying the same things to me? And so I sent Lisa a message and I said, we could do improv and therapy. And Lisa responded with, you did not invent that idea. Viola Spolin has been doing this since the 20s. And I said, no, no, I know. I said, but like, we could do improv and therapy. And she sends me a thumbs up emoji, sends me a thumbs up emoji. And I said, okay, well, I hope that you mean that because we are booked for next month. And we taught at a treatment center and they asked us to come back. And we said, yes, of course. And then they said, can you come back again? And we said, of course. And they said, can you do this with our therapists? And we said, absolutely. And then someone asked us to do a networking event at River Edge Hospital. And from there, it has just continued to grow and grow. And we are now using improv in multiple therapeutic settings. There's, depends on the group, but there will be like a, there'll be a therapist in the room taking clinical notes so that we are honoring the therapeutic nature of it and also not pretending to be anything that we're not. We also use it for crisis intervention training for police officers. And we use it to help corrections officers in training who are still in the academy to teach them communication skills. So we're, we're oh. using applied improv improvisation in a few different arenas. Oh, that's spectacular. I love that so much, especially the critical incident training. It's just yeah. so important. And we're talking in mid-September. I think you have a class coming up for improv for therapists. Don't, did I see that? In October. Yes. In October. Yes. It's going to be a weekly class. Yes. Right. So Wonderful. it's going to be eight weeks long. Well, it started, I met a therapist through the Women in Addiction Treatment networking group in Chicago. And she said, I want to bring improv therapy to my practice. And we said, sure. And she said she wanted to be in the class. So we just made another class just for therapists. Yeah, that's great. You know, they need some self-care and some playtime too, it turns out. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a wonderful fellow in Israel uh, named Asiel Romanelli, who has been doing study research on uh, programs he's developed for teaching improv to therapists, not necessarily for them to use improv, but to help change attitudes, beliefs, affect, all of that great stuff. So there's such a benefit just in that. This is awesome work you're doing. It's great. Thank you. It Very is inspiring. It is. And um, so on the Empathic Workplace Improv site, I saw a couple of quotes that I, I liked from you. Um, but one was a, uh, a talk you were giving that was up there. And we, you were talking about the empathy cocktail with oxy, uh, cortisol and oxytocin. And you can both jump in. I know you, you talked about it on your slide, but can you explain a little bit what that means? Sure. So I, I also want to note, I do find, I, I do see the irony that I am a sober person that gave a talk called empathy cocktail. I'm just, I guess <laughs> I see the irony there. Yes, I do. And so I learned from Valerie Jenks, who is you know, here in Chicago, 
she has, she does a lot of humor and, you know, improv in the recovery community. And she has a TED talk. And in her TED talk, she talks about how when we are telling a story to someone that the body releases oxytocin and cortisol, which pretty much prepares the body for empathy. So I called it an empathy cocktail. Um, I don't, I know she didn't call it that, that, that was all me. (laughs) And that, that was, was beautiful. All- it's very catchy. I like it. As a sober Thank woman you. myself, I found it very, very attractive. Very Thank attractive. <laughs> so another uh, quote that I have from you is, we believe improvisation skills infuse learning. Life does not have a script and failure is okay and perfection is not a thing. Can you both speak on that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, you heard that note I gave Angela. Don't be so perfect. Right. I tell my students, perfect is boring. Perfect is, you're not going to find the comedy in being perfect. Your character is not going to be interesting if they're perfect. So really stress embracing imperfection, not just embracing it, but celebrating it. And that's something that comes up in all of the different classes I teach, whether it be, you know, an improv class for the future Saturday Night Live stars or for, you know, in a recovery group, letting go of that of that strive to be perfect frees you up to find the real comedy and the real characters. Right. So often people start with wanting to be funny. Uh, yeah. Or add, uh, we have to squash that, <laughs> but, keep, <laughs> but be empathic with them at the same time. Exactly. Fine line sometimes. Yes. They I come think up for with- me, I needed permission to know that it was okay to be imperfect. I needed permission to be told there are no mistakes in improv. Everything is a gift. And it really shifts my entire paradigm, not just for improv, but for life. Because there is no, there is no script. You know, I didn't, I didn't sit down and prepare everything I was going to do this morning. You know, I, I was present in the moment and I was able to, even when it's difficult things, I'm able to be present now because I have this practice of improv where I'm constantly, it's like brain yoga. I'm constantly exercising my brain for exactly those things. And the whole concept of resilience too, and how, you know, life is going to throw things at you that are not perfect Mm -hmm. and you have to get through it. And so being able to practice being imperfect in improv helps us be more resilient when life's not perfect. It certainly isn't. In some of my classes, I use the ta-da exercise. If you think you've made a mistake, I want you, we're going to do the step out and ta-da. And uh, I know somebody might be shy about doing it, but once one person does it, it becomes contagious. Yes. And, uh, do you use similar things to help them with that, get over that idea of a mistake? Yes, definitely. And we uh, celebrate or embrace if something, you know, seemed a little wrong or someone thinks they made a mistake. We definitely celebrate that and find the comedy in that and embrace that. Lisa has a story that I absolutely love that teaches this. Um, the Blandy. Blandy. Oh, I was doing a show at Second City with a bunch of other faculty and I accidentally said the word Blandaid. I meant to say Band-Aid. But the word bland aid just came out of my mouth. And of course, everybody that I was performing with are great listeners, and they jumped right on that. 
And they made a, a beautiful scene about this new product, the Blandade, to cure you of your blandness. And that's, you know, <laughs> a big lesson for me. To, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to say Blandade. And it became a wonderful part of the evening. And that's part of that make your partner look good yeah. idea <laughs> that Del Close talked about and others. Uh, oh, yeah. So did you study with Del Close? No, I did not ever get to study with Dell. Okay. But how, maybe you can explain that phrase, make your partner look good. Like, how can I look yeah. good if I'm so concerned with making someone else look good? Right. So, well, my, uh, I mostly studied with Martin DeMott. Okay. And one of the things that he would always say was, you know, if you are just focused on making your scene partner look good, then you are less in your own head. You're not overly thinking about, you know, what you should say and, and all that. And then if they're also doing the same thing, if they're focusing on making you look good at the same time, that's when that improv magic happens. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. I remember when I learned that lesson, I was like, wait a second. All I have to do is make someone else look good. And then that makes me good. I was like, I can do this. I can do this improv thing. I can, I can make other people look good. I can, I can, I can assist. I got that. Because you had empathy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. And, and that's something that you actually teach and that might find, some people might find that strange that people need to be taught how to be empathic. Right. I, I think that a lot of times empathy is seen as weakness and empathy is strength. Empathy is, it takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes courage to be empathic. It takes courage to find that place inside of us that understands the emotion that led someone to a decision. We might not understand or agree with the action that they made, yet we can understand the emotions. And I often tell people, you know, if you're telling me that you don't understand emotions, you know, I heard that the DSM-5 calls that a psychopath. I just wanted to say DSM-5 to you, Margo. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> uh, you said it so, it tipped off your tongue. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, so I feel it's okay to acknowledge that you recognize emotions. I even put a feelings wheel into a presentation that I gave a couple of weeks ago to security professionals. So that happened. Cool. A cool. feelings wheel. I know. <laughs> I know. Yes. I love it. You know, for many years, you both must realize this therapist's standard line was, and how do you feel? Or how did that <laughs> yes. make you feel? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what came up for you? <laughs> yeah. So Lisa will say what instead. I love that you're laughing that hard, Margo. I love it. So Lisa, Lisa will say what came up for you around that. <laughs> so I, we, we love that line, especially, especially when we're teaching a group of therapists. Yeah. And it is. Sometimes it's hard to name feelings in the moment. I, mean, I was in therapy yesterday and my therapist had to ask me three times. Yeah, what were you feeling? How were you feeling? And I was like, oh, I'm mad at you now, but. <laughs> but before that, I guess, Tad. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of being mindful, too. I, I, I incorporate mindfulness in my classes. Um, yes. And uh, we did a, I did a new class with kids with autism. And our class is beyond autism. We have kids with CP, kids with Down syndrome, and other neurocognitive issues. And I think that I forgot what I was saying. The mindfulness. Yes, oh, mindfulness. Yes, yes. We, <laughs> it's I, also, I, I, got, 
got lost in thinking about these kids because they're all so unique and different, you know, and we have a lot, half the kids are on the spectrum, but other kids are very varied. And so we have a, a little spinner that has red, blue, yellow, green, and they can spin the spinner and pick a red game, a yellow, green, or blue game. So under yellow is meditation and they love the meditation game. And of course, having, you know, eight kids with diverse issues going on, lying down or sitting quietly and paying attention mm -hmm. to their breath is not an easy thing to do. Because right. there's no perfection, we accept them as what they're doing, but it never fails to amaze me, and we do it in our showcases too, how much mindfulness meditation is something that they really enjoy and appreciate. Yeah. And Absolutely. Do you use some mindfulness as well? or? So we have been doing a lot of research on dialectical behavioral therapy and seeing how, and mindfulness is one of the, I don't know what they call it, a pillar, but one of the pillars of DBT. And so we have been going through all the different aspects of DBT and associating different improv games so that we can put a practice for DBT using improvisation games. We're really having fun with that. Yeah. Are you going to create a course or what are you going to do with that? Yeah. That's, mm. that's our plan. That's our plan. God. We'll have to have another interview then to talk about how that worked out. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for EBT. EBT? Yeah. Extraordinary Behavioral Therapy. That's, that's yeah. the next one. I will, I, will t I will take that class. And then we have FBT, but we don't want to say what that is. Uh, <laughs> okay. There's different F words we could put in there that would be absolutely appropriate. <laughs> yes, you're right. And this is an adult podcast I run, so believe me. I've, Susan Messing has been on the show, so language is no concern with us here. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. So, so let's talk a little bit more about this, about imperfection. We talked about it a little bit, but the idea that we're, in, we're perfectly imperfect. In your expression, it's very crowded at the center of the universe. I know for being in recovery myself, sometimes I am the grandest worm in the gutter. Um, so yes. I have the grandiose part and then mm -hmm. that part of nothingness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think- Garbage, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think that has to do with imperfection, the feeling of imperfection. Where do you think that comes from? I, I personally think that a lot of us have a core wound somewhere of feeling not enough, something about us not being enough. And especially when we focus on achievements, and I get it, like you get, grades are important, school's important, I get that. There sometimes is a focus that can be, you know, it just tips a little bit to unhealthy. And I know for me, my perfectionism really solidified in my life when I was a 911 dispatcher and a mistake really could mean life or death. And I think that while that perfectionism mentality served me in that setting, like so many maladaptive behaviors, it does not serve me in the rest of my, I would never send emails. We wouldn't have a website if I allowed my perfectionism to, to creep into business. And it's, it, it really is a daily practice for me. Right. And the websites are so beautiful. They are really so well done. I'm very, very admiring of them. Totally. And what that about is, you? That is Intract. Intract is our, is our website designer. They are absolutely amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
Now, Lisa, did you ever struggle with imperfection? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Especially you're so, when you're I, so clean cut looking. You're like somebody from the house on the prairie, you know? No, I was raised by a jazz musician. So oh, this is right. very, you know, I'm not, I was not raised in a household that, uh, you know, if I compared it to normal households <laughs> or perfect households, you know, that just was not a thing at all in, in my home. And uh, I think for me, it really became a huge deal when I was a mom, when I was a young mom mm -hmm. and feeling like I had to be a perfect mom all the time and feeling like it looks like all the other moms are perfect. And, and we were so uh, social media or just out in public, I felt like we were so um, afraid to show our imperfections and to show that we were human and sometimes making mistakes. And I remember having like one friend who just, she was so refreshing to me because she would just be like, oh yeah, I forgot to pick my kid up again. And I was like, what? Like to me, you're not perfect all the time as a mom? Oh my goodness, I'm not perfect all the time. Can we talk? Because I feel like everybody else is perfect all the time. And then that was a big thing that I, I went into therapy and talked to my therapist about because that's, that's hard. Yeah, that's very yeah. common, especially because people are so judgmental about parenting and, and, parent, and being a parent and how people are doing. And one of the things I've learned is that the areas where we judge is the same areas where we are susceptible to shame and feeling not enough. So those who are judging us about our parenting skills are the ones who feel the, you know, they, they feel not enough about their own parenting skills. So I remember my sister sent a group text to my family that she just Googled what to do if your kid eats a glow stick. <laughs> so, so I love that it. Of, I screenshot that. That was one of my favorite text messages I ever got. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's people who, you know, listening to this podcast might judge that, you know, there's, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Not, that's my, okay. not my audience. No worries. What kind, of, yeah. what kind of family did you come from, Angela? I am the oldest of four children, which is also where my control issues and perfectionism come from. You know, being the oldest of four kids, I felt a lot of responsibility to make sure I was doing everything right for them and to set an example for them and, you know, just wanted to be the best big sister ever. So, you know, now I just work on being the best aunt ever. That's, I'm constantly in competition with the sister who had to Google the glow stick thing. She and I fight for her, her favorite aunt and I'm okay losing to her. She's, she's awesome. Well, you know, I was thinking about judging and self-judging and um, Lisa, you said something too that the idea that all these other moms are so perfect and there's this expression, we can't judge another person's insides by looking at their outsides. And I would add to that, that we can't judge their insides by looking at their outsides because we're probably so off base, it's not even funny. Right. And, and, uh, and that's where we get this. And I, I would like to say maybe women are more self-judgmental about this, comparing our mm -hmm. bodies. And I have a funny story about comparing bodies. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So I was in the mall around Christmas time with one of my best friends. And, um, I have had struggles with my eating as well. And, uh, I pointed to another woman who looked like she had a, a very big buttock. And I said, 
is my butt as big as that? And she said, no, it's bigger. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good friend. It's a good friend. It is a a good good friend friend because honesty is something we try to get to an improv too. get people to be honest. Yeah. Yes. In the time. Yes. yes. I actually use um, body body parts to demonstrate that thing that I said about we are most susceptible to judgment. I'm sorry. We're most judgmental in areas where we're susceptible to shame and comparison is usually the way that that will come up. And the example that I give is I'm very self-conscious about my butt, very self-conscious. So I will check out everybody's just to see how mine is in comparison. And once I learned that that's what judgment was, I have stopped doing that and just appreciate all the butts. I've never compared my chest to anyone else's chest because I think the girls are perfect. So that's the example. We are. We are, Angela. I got to tell you, a lot of times when I say that, people will start to tell me the parts of their body that they love. Instead, you would think that that conversation would start... You know, I thought that by sharing that, people would tell me things, more things that they didn't like about themselves. And the more that I share that story, the more people tell me what they do like about themselves, which is, just, you know, makes me really, really happy. Oh, that's such a connection for folks, too. I just love that. And what I like about myself, what I like about my body, I do an exercise called What I Like About Myself. And uh, it's, it's really a fun, but it's done in dyads and it's kind of fun. And sometimes people talk about surface things like I like my job. I like that I'm a good worker, but then they get into more. I like that I'm compassionate. I love my eyes, whatever it is. So I just, I love that. I like that practice. Um, my gratitude practice for my body or whatever I'm struggling with. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a family member. What am I grateful for uh, about them? But I'll go through the alphabet. And I'll say, you know, if it's about my body, and I'll say, I'm grateful I'm alive. I'm grateful I'm breathing. I'm grateful I can chew. I'm grateful I can, I can drink this coffee. I'm grateful I can eat food I like. That's a wonderful exercise. And I bet if you had insomnia, you might be able to use that. Yeah. It's, it's actually my nighttime. After I say the serenity prayer every night. And after that is when I begin my gratitude practice. And it's rare that I get to X. That's wonderful. You know, there's so many connections with improvisation and recovery. Yeah, So many concepts that are. Well, that is one of the things when Lisa and I were talking about what did we want our purpose to be? Because we know applied improvisation is a thing. Like Lisa said, I didn't invent this. So, which is one of my favorite things that you've ever said to me. And so... Because she invented everything else. (laughs) I mean, she wrote the book on it. So we talked about what, what do we want our purpose to be as far as improvisation? And what do we want to, you know, who do we want to serve? And we really decided that we were going to focus on the recovery community. It's a community and a group of people that is very often stigmatized and shunned and you know being in recovery myself that's you know that's obviously very close to my heart so we decided that that was going to be our purpose it's a great purpose to have wonderful so let's talk a little bit about authenticity what does it mean to be authentic i well i told my butt story that was pretty authentic 
Yeah. Like yeah. being real, being honest. Um, I think it connects with, you know, we do so much work with emotional intelligence and, and being able to explore those emotions. And like you were saying, we don't want to just go to the, you know, the easy low hanging fruit, get the cheap laugh kind of thing mm-hmm. in improv. We want to, we want to respond honestly and find the humor in the honest situation that these characters are going through. And I think that's where being authentic really comes into play. And then to connect that with trying to do that in, in life and not just in an improv scene is where that practice comes into play. Yeah. I, for me, it's the ability to show up and allow myself to be seen and that is something that I, I remember the first time we went to go teach improv at a treatment center and I did not want to tell people that I was in recovery because I was scared they were going to say, you know, I, I, all of my, you know, fears about myself came up. I was scared they were going to say like, well, you haven't been in recovery long enough or, you know, all the, all the things that I, I was worried about, all, all the things. And I shared anyway. And at the end of that group, I remember them saying to me, thank you so much for telling us that you're in recovery. Thank you so much for telling your story. It's the reason that I stayed. It's the reason that I listened. And, you know, I want what you have. And I, I try to remember that every time I'm hesitant about sharing my story. And just about every time I do, uh, just about every time I do share that story, whatever it is, and I choose vulnerability. Yes, yes. Yeah, vulnerability is so important. And as a therapist, you know, we're kind of taught not to self-disclose, not to have pictures of our family or anything like that. And I'm pretty self-disclosing myself. Yeah. And I think it's appropriate about my recovery or about other, you know, identifying with my anxious patients and, you know, and maybe I'm still struggling with something that day. And I well, think and, you know, and, you know, it creates an empathy cocktail in that person. When you tell mm-hmm. your story their body's releasing oxytocin and cortisol. And so many times I have felt validated, just so you know, from the other end of that couch, I have felt validated so many times when my therapists will say things like, you know, I struggle with imposter syndrome too. Or, you know, multiple therapists have used stories from their lives as a metaphor to sometimes tell me how ridiculous I sound, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's fine. I'll take it. And it's, it, it can, it can bring me, it takes me out of my emotional brain and gets me thinking rationally again because they, they, they taught me in a story. So I love that you do that. I think it's fantastic that you do that. It makes you human. Well, I'm really happy that you're interviewing me today. And I, I, I'm just so <laughs> pleased to <laughs> have <experience>. this <laughs> So the other word uh, that I wanted to explore a little bit was the word physicality uh, and how that plays in improv and improv therapy. Yeah, that's a great question. So we teach such a variety of people with different varying levels of abilities. Um, So I usually phrase it as, you know, I'm going to invite you to move around with this exercise a bit. If you feel comfortable doing that, mm-hmm. if you're more comfortable to stay in your seat, you can also do this exercise from there just fine. But if you feel like it, I invite you to get up and let's move around and get to some of the physical because it does, um, it feels good to get physical. Vela Spolin talked about uh, these, these games being so great because they were non-competitive 
games, but they were still physical. So not like, you know, getting out there and playing football against each other, but to play an improv game where you're getting to do some physicalities is so good for you. And she has so many of them from a space walk to all kinds yes. of things. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Well, the physicality part, oh, I'm sorry, the physicality part for me, uh, when I am doing improv, I can't think about what my body is doing and body image and insecurity around my body is a big part of my ED recovery. And one of the things I love about improv is I can't be in my own head about it. And to the point where I can perform on stage, like I might not want to take a selfie, but I will get on stage and I can be present and, and be okay being physical and being in my body. And it's a place, it's a place where of all the places you would think on stage, I might be most uncomfortable, but I'm not. It's, I'm very comfortable because I've got my ensemble around me. And that's another thing I really like about improv is the idea of an ensemble and that it's not competitive. You know, I, I know that they say teams compete an ensemble. It's all about what's good for the ensemble is good for the individual. And that's how we run as a business, actually. We, you know, we all have different titles and we all have different things that, you know, different strengths that we bring to the group. And before anything else, we are an ensemble. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And to have found a partnership, this is, I think it was a real serendipitous event when, you're, when your planets collided. That Yes. Yeah. I really, I, I, I feel that way about my first uh, improv teacher who continues to be the director I work for now in the theater. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, this relationship just is so special you know. Hey. and it's because somebody sees me, they see me mm-hmm. and they pay attention. And yeah. I love those skills from improv. So let me ask you what's on the horizon. I know about with the DBT and do you have some other things going on? So I could say, Oh, I knew them when. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you'll be with us when you're telling people that. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we have a show tonight. Yeah, that we're, we're doing a show tonight. We're doing a sober comedy show. How cool is that? Oh, cool. Yes. Yes. The show is called Serenity Now. A friend of mine, Whitney, is the <laughs> one that does this show. Um, Whitney is amazing. Yes. They have had this show for about, I want to say a year now. It's once a month. So when you do come to Chicago and we do hang out, we'll have to make sure that it's around the Serenity Now so you can come see that show and meet Whitney. I love it. Yeah. It's, love it. Uh, that's one of the things on our horizon. And we're, we're working on writing a book. Uh, an improv therapy book and we're working on a dbt yes. connection and we're working on teaching some therapists improv more i think that class is going to be more about self-care for them uh but like anything else when something works for us we incorporate oh no dropped you. i lost my pop socket <laughs> i can still hear you <laughs> <laughs> okay um Oh, yeah, and it started to rain a little bit harder, so you might hear that in the car, too. Sorry about that. Uh, I forget what I was saying before I dropped my phone. What are we up to? Oh, um, what are we up to? Yes, and, well, the, the, I think that the therapists, once they, once you learn, once something works for you, you tend to use it in other things. So it'll cross over to practice, I'm sure. You're so busy, and Lisa, you're teaching at Second City and yes. doing all of this, so... That's yes, great. but I'm not busy enough yet. I am so ready to teach more. Like I, I, I'm most happy when I'm in the classroom and I just want to keep spreading the word. I'm bringing this and hearing everyone's stories and playing with everyone. And yeah, 
We can keep doing this. Let's yeah. keep yeah. going. Lisa is electric in front of a crowd. She is electric in front of a crowd. She's amazing. I bet. Well, you're both amazing and so beautiful. Um, so I want to thank you so much for being here with me today. And, thank you uh, for inviting us. We yes. love you. you I think we should do it again. I love the work you're doing. Love, love. We're fans of yours. Yes. Well, listen, I really want to speak with you again, but for now, we'll say goodbye and thank you for your time so much. Thank you, Margot. Thank you.